folks, it's time for Democratic Perspective, brought to you by the Verde Valley Independent Democrats, a weekly talk show about the crucial political issues facing the Verde Valley, Sedona, Northern Arizona, and the nation at large. Join us for a stimulating, thought-provoking discussion. You'll get the facts as we focus on the challenges facing everyone. Good morning, Verde Valley. Thank you for tuning in and starting your week with us. I'm Hava Derby, again, solo in the studio today. My guest, uh, Julie Gunnigal, standing by. I'm really excited to dive in with her today. But before we do that, I want to thank Kathy Kinsella for uh, filling in last week as our guest co-host. It was a wonderful show with Yavapai County Recorder, Leslie Hoffman. And elections director Lynn uh, Constable. Uh, it's a really great discussion about all things voting. I learned a lot. Uh, if you want to watch the show or listen to the show, you can find all of our past episodes at the website Verde Valley Independent Organ- uh, Democrats. Dot org. Uh, you can also find uh, them on our Facebook page or anywhere you listen to podcasts, Google or Apple. Uh, and a big thank you, of course, to our wonderful supporter, Steve Segner. And El Portal, that gorgeous, uh, pet-friendly resort next to Talakapaki. Thank you, Steve, for your ongoing support. And Door, Democrats of the Red Rocks. Uh, you can find them on Facebook and also at their website, democratsoftheredrocks.org. Uh, and check them for their upcoming breakfast. They're still on Zoom, so there's no buffet, but the uh, speakers and topics are great as always. Uh, last week's was great, climate change and uh, Sedona's uh, climate change plan. Um, and, uh, yeah, the mission for petitions continues. So please head over to the door office uh, anytime they're open on Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday, 11 a.m. to 3 p.m., wear your mask. Um, they're still collecting petitions uh, against voter suppression, reduction in education funding, and dark money's influence in politics. So this Saturday at 28, they're doing another drive. There's only a few weeks to get these. So please uh, head on over. You can also collect petitions, get people to sign them. They'll notarize them. Um, so, yes, please uh, check out Democrats of the Red Rock. And with all that said, I want to welcome our guest today. I love this woman. Julie Gunnigal is a local loudmouth attorney and activist who fights for justice in our criminal legal system, for funding in our public schools, and for reproductive justice for our families. She was the 2020 Democratic nominee for Maricopa County attorney, coming closer than any Democrat in 40 years to taking that office. Yeah, that was quite a turnout. Since that time, Julie's been working as the political director for the Arizona chapter of the National Organization for the reform of marijuana laws, where she helps individuals who have been directly impacted by the war on drugs to expunge their convictions and get a true second chance. She remains committed to transformation in our criminal legal system and holding those who abuse their power accountable. Mm-hmm. I watched her do this all year. Hi, Julie. Thank you for joining me this morning. Hi, Hava. Good morning. Well, I met you back uh, last summer when... Uh, Alistair Adele had uh, decided not to charge the uh, cop that killed Dion Johnson, uh, met you at a press conference. And when you spoke, and I'd been following your campaign for a bit, I just, the, so many of us were so hopeful that, hmm, maybe there's going to be some fairness and transparency and accountability in that office and with the police. And um, we went to bed on election night thinking you had won and uh, woke up to uh, hearing that, one, Adele had uh, 
had a, a brain bleeding incident and was in the hospital and you had uh, and she had won. Um, so we've had all kinds of ongoing shenanigans in that time. I know you've been playing close, atten- close attention. Um, and of course, now we've got this Department of Justice investigation. I know you've been uh, looking at this closely and, and uh, I'm going to let you kind of jump off with uh, how this all got started. Some of the origins. I mean, the, the, the police has been on the DOJ's uh, radar for a lot of years, but there's been a you know, convergence of, of things coming together to um, have them make a formal investigation. Uh, why don't you talk a bit about where this, how this started? Sure. So I think the story of this investigation, you're right, goes back years and years because Phoenix PD and some of the police departments in our outlying areas have been some of the most violent in the nation, right? And in the face of that violence, there hasn't been met with any sort of accountability, uh, particularly within our prosecutor's office. We've seen time and time again officers who've committed abuses um, and use of force incidents that aren't justified, and they go uncharged. But that was just one of five different issues that made the DOJ step in to our county. So on top of that, there were the instances involving the protesters last year, whether it be the cut-and-paste indictments or the 39 folks who were charged with criminal gang enhancements for exercising their First Amendment rights. I mean, that was a, a big reason folks were stepping in. And then last, the ongoing abuses with respect to our unhoused uh, population and those experiencing mental health incidents. Um, it's it's been shameful, and the fact I think it really shows that police aren't able to police police. Right. And for that reason, you have to have um, sometimes the Fed step in. Now, I'm not particularly optimistic as to what happens next. Right. But it it is a step, and it speaks to just how urgent and dire the situation in Arizona is. Yes, yes. And you mentioned, uh, you know, our mentally, uh, or excuse me, uh, mental health and uh, unhoused issues with uh, interactions with police. Um, One in particular, I know that this uh, case tipped off the uh, DOJ as well. Um, And this is the case of Mohammed Mohamed, who was killed by police in 2017, um, both unhoused and had mental health challenges, and um, boy, you watch that video, it is heartbreaking. Um, he was beyond compliant. Um, it's, it's, it's a tough one to watch, but uh, I think um, some mus- was it a Muslim organization, uh, Muslim advocates, national organizations in Washington, D.C., um, they uh, requested the federal investigation. Um, I know David, is it Shami? Is that how you say his last name? Yes, it is. Yeah, so he's representing the family. Um, talk do you, do you talk a little bit about that case and how this has um, become kind of a, a cornerstone of this investigation. Sure. I, so first, when we talk about this investigation, I think it, it needs to be said at the outset and uh, recognizing the bravery of a few individuals. Um, and, you know, th- those would be the directly impacted black-led organizations like MassLib and Phoenix um, Metro BLM, mm-hmm. um, you know, Dave Biscabine, who's courageous reporting yep. uh, is a big part of this. And then courageous attorneys and David Tammy is, is one of, of just a handful. And I like talking about courage because I, I know it's contagious and I want to see more mm-hmm. courageous people speaking out. Yeah. But his advocacy on behalf of the Muhammad family um, truly has been, been courageous. You know, the, this instance really wasn't covered when or covered well when it happened. The county attorney decided not to charge 
the cops involved. And then in the face of George Floyd, which was an almost identical cause of death, um, you know, a slow asphyxiation at the hands of police officers, this case, because of the attorney advocacy, resurfaced in the hearts and minds of Arizonans. It was our county attorney's position um, that she couldn't even reopen the case without those officers referring themselves for prosecution. <laughs> hmm. How does that work? And just, <laughs> just to pause there for a second, that is the official stance to reopen cases of police misconduct or brutality. Basically, they and, turn themselves in is what you're saying, essentially. Yeah. 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 They that it's never that it's never going to happen because nobody's ever going to to self refer. Yeah. Um, incidentally, the other issue with that that take is that it's not the law. You know, our county attorneys have AZ Post certified officers inside those offices and can bring back cold cases, can reopen investigations. But it's really difficult when somebody makes, you know, a procedure-based argument in an office, two offices, in fact, that are shrouded in secrecy, um, to be able to have to rebut that publicly and then to really apply that pressure. And I think that's one of the reasons why um, David's work deserves you know, so much commendation in this case. Yeah. Yeah. It was really great to see him speak on this. He's really passionate. One of the, one of the, one of the things that's come out of, uh, you know, last year's protesting is that a lot of these folks really became, and I'm sure they already were, but a lot of the community service came out of last year. A lot of the groups, you know, we all didn't know each other, but suddenly we started working together, working with the unhoused, a lot of work downtown. And David was there on one of the occasions when uh, police were harassing us for passing out supplies to the un- the unhoused. Um, they do sweeps still down in um in downtown and make everyone move their belongings. I think they have increased the number of days they're doing this. Now I think it's three days a week that they have to move their things. Oftentimes they have to choose between, um, you know, getting their things moved or maybe having a meal or um, having a meeting with someone that's going to help them get IDs. So there's a lot of interference um, between un- our unhoused and the police. Um, what I found interesting, and maybe Julie, you know, uh, Scott Connolly, who is, uh, excuse me, Sean Connolly, who is assistant chief. And I think he's uh, being called to be fired. Um, he's working a lot with the unhoused. So it's really interesting to watch this intersection of helping, but also not helping. I mean, in really horrible ways, what they're doing to our unhoused community. Um, are you hopeful with this investigation that we'll at least see a shift in perception around the connection between uh, law enforcement and our unhoused? That that for me is particularly precious. The 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 dealing with our unhoused and how we're um, how we're treating them. Um, can you speak a little bit about? I guess law enforcement and, and uh, I don't know where my question's going here, but it's really um, a huge one for me. Um, yeah, I'll stop rambling. I, mean, I think a lot of people are, are really questioning whether or not they'll ever see change. Mm-hmm. Because this, <laughs> when the rights of the few depend on, on a, a vote every four years, um, it's not, no longer a person issue, it's a systems issue. Mm-hmm. And the way that we treat the unhoused is, is a systems issue here in Arizona. So to think that uh, replacing a few actors in our system would represent any real change 
um, I think is a, an overly Pollyanna view of, of the world. Uh, you know, one of the, the biggest issues that we have within uh, the police departments is a culture issue. And right. how you shift the culture, uh, first of all, can almost never be, be a top-down solution. We've seen how that doesn't work. But we've also seen how DOJ investigations, and in particular, I'm looking at the DOJ intervention in Ferguson, how it preser- uh, preserved the power structure and made some surface-level changes, but that's it. And sometimes these DOJ investigations can have the perverse effect of more funding and more of our resources right, right. being poured into a system that really hasn't changed or transformed at all. Yeah. So do you know, uh, let's see, Louisville and uh, Minneapolis, these DOJ investigations, are, do you know how they're going? Or are they involving community? Or do you have any idea of what's, uh, how those are going? Sure. So, I mean, I, I suppose there's two uh, sources to listen to. If one were to listen to, um, you know, the, the media, I think you'd see the same story that played out um, there, playing out here, you know, uh, initial you know, thank you so much for being here, and then a long investigation that takes an awful lot of time. Um, and then again, no no real changes that are forthcoming. Um, the people that I've been listening to on these issues are those who have been most directly impacted. And when you talk to the leaders of those organizations, um, you hear that it hasn't necessarily been a community-involved effort, that okay. um, it and that it hasn't really produced any sort of lasting change and that it hasn't been listening to the community. Um, I mean, to, heck, to, to throw your, your kickoff uh, telephone call on the day that Mr. Brown was killed, the anniversary of the day that Mr. Brown was killed in Ferguson, um, kind of, I think, shows you where the DOJ's head is at in terms of interacting with the community. They should have been able to to understand how inappropriate that was right, on that particular right. day to launch it. And that's you know, one uh, one point of concern that I've heard over and over again. Yeah. Yeah, there's, uh, I think uh, this kind of swings back to culture. Um, you know, I'm, I've said it before, I'm an abolitionist. I don't think that this uh, whole system is fixable. Um, and I, I agree with you that it's just the, always the answer is throw more money at it. Um, and so, yeah, culture. We are um, dealing with a group that, a doesn't want any accountability or transparency, and two doesn't have, um, yeah, the culture. We're talking about a lot of racism. We're talking about um, a good old boys club. It's it's um, and again that whole bad apples. You know, we were joking about uh, you know you put a pint of bad apples into a quart of apple juice. Uh, it's it's undrinkable, and it's um, it's kind of what we're dealing with here. I. I, I how hopeful are you that um, there's any change available in a system this riddled with um, these issues, really core issues of racism and, and uh, classism? What, what, what are you thinking about? Well, I mean, I think it would be naive to go into this situation um, feeling hopeful because the it really needs to be underscored how pervasive these issues are and how long um, they've been here. Even in recent history, we've seen several instances of extreme and overt racism in our police departments. Um, let's let's talk about those for one hot second. Yeah, I think it really matters. You know, there was an instance. Um, gosh, was it three years ago now, where 
there was an investigative reporter who started to infiltrate different police Facebook pages. And what they saw again and again were incredibly racist and misogynistic memes and comments and, and all sorts of um, celebrations of violating folks' rights. And instead of seeing, you know, that swift and severe accountability, what we saw was our police union paying to scrub the online identity of their officers. Wow. So we saw, we saw how the system protects itself then, and then we saw the, the challenge coin for the uninitiated, the Phoenix police during the, uh, what was it, the 2017 protests of then-President Donald Trump down at our convention center, pepper sprayed uh, the crowd, resulting in actually a, a huge settlement for, for use of force. But in, uh, in that process, uh, hit a protester in the groin with a, with a pepper spray ball and ended up creating a challenge coin that said, good, li- good night, left nut, which is a, a play on a neo-Nazi slogan, and distributed this throughout the police department. Now, what we've learned because this, of the brave journalistic efforts of people like Dave Biscabine, we've learned not just that um, those were distributed, that they existed, and that they were celebrated, but also that police have set up a merchandise station featuring not just the coin, but also patches and shirts where you could go in and buy one to celebrate this act of violence wow. against a protester. That's wrong. And the fact that it took four years and a Ballard Spar investigation to reveal even those details is shocking. But then to, to hear in, in those reports that, of course, the chief had no idea. Um, that, of course, this is the single bad apple who is, uh, you know, a, a rogue police officer selling this merchandise. Um, and that, you know, the, the blame falls on a single person. Again, it's, for anybody who's been following along in the history of police investigations, they should know that that's, that's not the case. Yeah. Well, if I'm correct, the, the police department really refused to cooperate uh, in that investigation of Ballard Spar. Like there wasn't even transparency yeah. in that investigation. Um, and, you know, we talked about uh, school, schools back in session for Congress and for our city council Tuesday, this Tuesday, August 24th at noon. Uh, there's a, a council meeting to talk about uh, this challenge coin and the gang charges that were brought up against protesters. Um, and people can uh, sign up to speak. We're back at it. Um, and so within all of this, Julian, I know you're very well of no cap. I think one of my uh, the most the most hopeful part of this investigation is really turning a lens on to the treatment of our unhoused and uh, those facing mental health challenges and getting our officers out of communities and answering 911 calls that just don't call for police presence. They're not trained for it. They don't want to show up for these calls. Um you know, so rather than having some new training going on for our, our police, of course, uh, we are much more interested in, in a community assistance program, which the the, the city has so far. It's called CAP or Community Assist. Is it Community? I can't remember what their CAP stands for, um, but it's currently housed under the fire department. Uh, it's a small department, and the city has uh, given $15 million for it to continue and to grow, hopefully, over the last couple of years. But we want NOCAP, Neighborhood Organized Crisis Assistance Program. It's been uh, a year now that um, a small group of people have uh, really helped it blossom into something that hopefully the city will adopt. So there's really a push 
to have uh, a bigger and better iteration of a crisis assistance program here in Phoenix. Um, so I'm encouraging people to please show up at the meeting tomorrow. You can also um, send a comment as well if you don't want to speak. But, um, Julie, I know you've um, become familiar with NOCAP. How hopeful are you that the city will um, kind of turn reins over to a brand-new health department uh, instead of um, continuing with their current iteration? You know, in this area, I, I am more optimistic. I think that there is a ton of pressure um, being heaped at the feet of city council for dereliction of duty when it comes to holding police officers accountable. And I think this is the perfect opportunity for everybody who's listening. I mean, there's a call in line. Uh, NOCAP has been phenomenal um, in turning folks out and flooding the phone lines. And let me just tell you, it makes a big difference. Yeah. Uh, especially when we talk about the differences between what a no-cap program looks like and what we currently have. What we currently have is a program that uh, has failed, and we're just throwing, as you rightly said, more money at it. We are looking at a program that has response times over 30 minutes, which is ineffective, and that is effectively carceral. And to break that down, especially when you're talking to to folks who are experiencing mental health crisis, one of, the, one of the pervasive worries is will they experience violence or will they be arrested as a result of calling police during a crisis event? Right. And the way CAP works right now, um, what they have said publicly, is if there is a any element of criminality that they will involve the police. And in particular, folks who are experiencing mental health issues, um, oftentimes there's an overlap uh, with that and and addiction and substance use disorders, right? Which they're unaware of. They don't even really know what's happening for the person. They don't not trained in de-escalation or any of these um, issues that people are experiencing. And and the fire departments made it clear. I remember last year they said we need police backup when we're downtown um, interacting with the unhoused, which you know just further involves law enforcement, which is not what we want, and, and uh, NOCAP being a completely separate entity where uh, 911 calls are filtered to a um, first responder uh, with medical experience and, of course, a mental health provider, whatever is most called for um, on the call. And it doesn't involve uh, any law enforcement unless necessary. Uh, we see with cahoots up in Eugene, out of thousands of calls, you know, maybe 1% needed uh um, a law enforcement backup. So we see that it works. Um, so yes, I'm, this is for me, this is the most hopeful piece of, of this last year and protesting and, um, all of the egregiousness coming out of the county attorney's office and the police. So, um, yeah, so I, I, like you, I encourage people to show up. And, you know, Dave Biscoving said it, you know, the DOJ actually reached out and said they were watching all of, you know, the reporting and also these calls that we've showed up on. They, they, they did make a difference. They really did. So I encourage people to continue, continue doing it, showing up. I'll be there tomorrow. Yes. It'll be fun. Hours on the phone. Hopefully I'll be up by a body of water next time. Uh, <laughs> so, yes, everybody stay tuned. I'm, I'm sure we'll update you again on, on this uh, Department of Justice investigation. Um, so, yeah, Julie, thank you for your insight on this. We'll keep our fingers crossed, although we're not hopeful, but at least we know things are happening around uh, things like no cap and um, really taking some um, – some real uh, change to heart here. Um, I would love to jump in to Julie. Some of your most um, 
passionate work. You are the um, political director, am I saying that right, for Normal? Um, that is correct. Yeah. And uh, so share with us what's happened since the passing of uh, Prop 207. Of course, now we know that uh, recreational marijuana is legal. But one of the provisions is people can have their low-level marijuana charges scrubbed from their records. And so you're helping uh, people go through that process. Tell us what's happening around that. Sure. So the voters of Arizona, uh, by the biggest margin of any state that has approved an adult use program, approved of Prop 207. And on July 12th, that was a go-live date for expungement, um, you know, we, we got our first second chance ever in Arizona law. Arizona did not have a provision to seal someone's criminal records. We had something called a set-aside but we didn't have something that would truly remove a charge from a person's record. So for low-level cannabis charges, and those are possession charges where the amount, it was less than 2.5 ounces of flour or 12.5 grams of concentrate, the cultivation of six or fewer plants, or the possession of cannabis paraphernalia, those are all charges that can get expunged. Now, the interesting part to me is that we have no earthly idea how many people are potentially affected because of the way we keep records here or don't keep records here in Arizona. It's it's nearly impossible to tell. Our estimates are between a quarter million and half million eligible arrests, convictions, adjudications um, are, are eligible for this process. One of the things that Normal has been fighting for is, you know, a really realistic look at the system because we're never going to reach a quarter million people and do clinics um, that'll that'll have that that kind of impact. What we need are our prosecutors to step in and actually do this sort of work. In 207, the voters gave prosecutors the ability to make expungement universal and automatic, and not a single county attorney nor the AG has taken the voters up on that. Huh. And that that should be shocking, you know, with with a 60% approval rating for Prop 207 and an 80% public approval rating for expungement, the fact that no prosecutor is stepping in and doing this work is appalling. So yeah. it's on organizations like Normal to get out there, and we've been um, raising a group of attorneys to do these clinics. Our goal is to hit every single uh, county throughout the state. We've also uh, created a virtual option so that people can prepare an expungement petition from the privacy of their own home. You can find that information on ArizonaNormal.org, and it takes you through. It interviews you. It puts all that information into a petition, and all you have to do is hit print and take it over to the court. Beautiful. So this is a petition. So mm-hmm. you're, not, um, you're not giving any legal advice or representation in court. You are helping people get their petition ready to um, take to the court system. Is that right? That's exactly right. In okay. fact, maybe that bears mentioning I'm an attorney, but I'm not your attorney. You might want to seek the advice of an attorney, but... For the vast majority of folks, um, you know, unless there's a, a, a gray issue or unless um, there's, you know, a pending case, a pending immigration charge, an active warrant, um, most folks won't need the services of an attorney to get this done. This is something that is quick and easy and takes fewer than 15 minutes. Okay, so full disclosure, I have an old marijuana charge, possession, small amount, Um What's, walk me through the process. So I'm going to come to a clinic. Um, I've just got my ID on me and my name. What's, what's the process of me getting to the place where I've got a clean record? 
door. So you walk into the doors of one of one of our clinics, and one of our friendly or maybe not so friendly volunteers will meet you. Um, we initially ask you some questions about your eligibility. So you know how much cannabis was it? Uh, was it in Arizona? Because this only applies to Arizona-based state convictions, not federal ones. And from there, for the vast majority of people, we're able to find a criminal history on public access. We put that information into our computer. Uh, we ask you a few follow-up questions like, do you want a hearing? Do you remember if your case started, you know, for example, in a justice court versus a superior court? Uh, but it's a really easy process. Um, so 10 minutes later, you know, we hit go and you get emailed a petition. You print off two copies of, of that petition. You walk it over to your county courthouse. And then 30 days later, uh, in theory, you get a notice from the court saying that your conviction has been expunged and is being transferred over to the Department of Public Safety to remove the arrest record as well. Uh, our prosecutors have 30 days to object to an expungement. And in, you know, the vast majority of cases, they're not objecting. Someone is clearly eligible and this gets processed. And 30 days later, you have a completely clean record. Yay. Awesome. And so how are you? So the courts are um, interpreting the law fairly, you know, easily. I mean, have you not seen any issues with um, how the courts are interpreting this law when they're dealing with the expungements? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay. So there you got me. There are some exceptions. Um, So uh, there's a few there's a case out of Pima County right now that. We're, we're struggling with where the court has taken it on themselves to say that, you know, somebody needed to produce, the prosecutors needed to produce all of this proof that someone wasn't eligible. Um, so that's problematic and that's going to be appealed because that's not at all what the voters said. Um, there's also some issues with respect to incarcerated individuals. So the voters were told that on uh, November 30th, when the election results became certified, that every county attorney asked the Department of Corrections to release anybody who had an expungible offense. So even before the expungement um, statute went live in July, back in November, they said release them all. What Normal is now finding because of prisoner outreach that we, we do and, uh, you know, the, the mail that we get back, there are still a ton of people who are being held for no other reason than cannabis-related oh, charges. Oh, wow. Okay. Mm. And that should be shameful. Uh, before 207, our, our estimate was that it was about, um, you know, $7 million a year that Arizona voters were spending just to lock up people on low-level possession charges. Right. Um, we found that that is probably an underestimation and that that practice continues. We're also seeing county attorneys get a little bit creative in how they charge folks to get around 207. Um which is which is to be expected, you know. Two hundred seven said that you can no longer use the odor of cannabis as probable cause to search. Mm. So we're just now seeing how police departments are being creative in in stating probable cause so that they can still do the same sorts of frankly discriminatory searching that happened before uh, the initiative. We're also seeing uh, in the in the prosecutors' offices. There's a few that have been extremely resistant to granting these and will have asked folks to jump through some additional hoops. But thankfully, those are the exceptions and not the rule. And we have a cadre of of appellate attorneys who are ready to go and fight on these issues. Great. Well, good. Well, I hope people will be encouraged to... um 
attend one of these clinics. It sounds like a pretty darn easy process. I'm going to see you next month uh, in the, at the September clinic, so I'm looking forward to having a clean record again. I'm so grateful you're doing this work. It's um, I know it's probably going to be a quite a while um, taking care of this uh, this many um, this many cases. Um, yes, let's see. So since we decided that uh, uh, or or uh, I was going to jump in. Yes. Okay. Sorry about that. Look at my notes here. Congress back in session this week and H.R. 4. I was really excited to talk to you about this. H.R. 4, uh, John R. Lewis um, voting rights advancement bill. Am I getting all those words right? Um, you are. Yeah. So they're going to are they voting on that this week? Do you think that is my understanding? Yes. Okay. So if people don't know, this is a voting bill that hopefully will restore aspects of the 1965 Voting Rights Act that uh, that uh, some of its aspects have been struck down by the Supreme Court. So um, what what do you know of this uh, voting bill, Julie? What do you, are you uh, hopeful about its passage? You know, I am. I think that preserving the right to vote is really the only path forward if we still care about democracy. And these efforts in these states to pass voter suppression laws have been absolutely out of control this last legislative session. And guess what? It's going to get so much worse next session as we deal, especially in Arizona, with a lame duck, um, well, a group of legislators who are essentially lame ducks. So that part's troubling. You know, this is something that I've been watching for a while because when people point to disastrous Supreme Court decisions, you know, we often hear about, you know, oh, we can trace the fall of democracy to Citizens United or to one of the, uh, you know, more restrictive abortion cases. Um, And I, I think all of that's incorrect. I think when we look at our current political crisis and problems, we can trace it back to the Shelby County decision which gutted the Voting Rights Act and made it so that certain states who had a history of racial discrimination did not have to have preclearance for their maps, right. finding that more or less uh, discrimination in voting wasn't a thing here. And that's the layperson's interpretation of the Shelby County. Yeah, it's not a thing. It's not a thing anymore is what the Supreme Court um, right. said and found. So I'm hopeful that we'll see some federal intervention because if not, um, it's on us, y'all. Like, it's on us signing those petitions and making sure that we can refer all of those terrible bills to the ballot. But that's not a sustainable path for democracy. Initiatives are incredibly expensive to run. They take a lot of person power. They are a distraction often from electing candidates who are values aligned. Uh, To give you an example, in 2018, voters overwhelmingly said no to Prop 305, which would have been a expansion of the ESA program here in Arizona. It was expansion of vouchers, basically, to any student who wanted one in our state. And voters said, no, we're not going to do that. We're not going to gut public education. But in using that united voice saying no, they ended up reelecting the same people who had previously voted to gut public education. (laughs) So when we look at these initiatives, I I think by and large we're going to see, you know, resounding no vote. Um, that they should remain law, but unless we keep doing the work, we're going to elect people who keep on placing us in this scenario, and that is utterly unsustainable. 
Yes, indeed it is. And you mentioned earlier in talking about uh, legislation of last year, you mentioned abortion laws. Um, you, uh, I don't know if you're involved, but you'll, you'll fill me in here, but the National Council of Jewish Women, the Arizona chapter, filed a lawsuit. Um, I think that went live just last week, if I'm correct. Um, talk a little bit about what this uh, lawsuit is and um, some issues around abortion it's, it's hoping to, to uh, clear up. Sure. So uh, first, I'm speaking only on behalf of Julie Gunnigal right now and not my capacity as a board member for the National Council of Jewish Women, Arizona chapter. I'm required to say that ahead of time. <laughs> uh, but what this suit does, and we were one of several lawsuits that launched last Tuesday. Last Tuesday, the cool thing to do was to sue the state of Arizona. <laughs> and it was either three or four lawsuits that dropped on the same day. Wow. But the one that National Council and um, the National Organization of Women and several Arizona doctors are involved with, challenges SB 1457. SB 1457 was a bill that was like the Christmas tree of terrible abortion ideas all combined into one bill. Mm. It did a few different things. First, it created fetal personhood as the rule here in Arizona, that any time that Arizona law refers to a person, that person also includes a fertilized egg, Um, a zygote, an embryo, uh, a fetus. And that should be shocking in and of itself because it raises big questions about about what that means and whether or not, you know, now a fertilized egg has the same rights, privileges, and immunities as you or I. Every state that's gone down that path has used it and turned it against primarily women of color to prosecute them for either substance use during pregnancy, trip and fall during pregnancy, uh, those sorts of issues claiming that the mother is somehow uh, adverse to the interests of, of uh, the child that she's carrying. Mm. And that should, be, that should be troubling in and of itself. Yeah. Uh, it also mandates a uh, funeral for fetal tissue. So, <laughs> and that's against patient's wishes. Mm. And there are many faiths, including the Jewish faith, that does not believe that a burial of fetal tissue is, is allowed or appropriate. It also allows... A, pers- a uh, presumptive grandparent or father to sue a person obtaining an abortion um, in in court on a civil on a civil suit if they have obtained an abortion because there is a genetic abnormality, and we haven't seen how that's going to play out yet. And then it also uh, prescribes criminal penalties for doctors who perform abortions for patients who are seeking an abortion because of a fetal abnormality. Okay, so then this uh, this lawsuit, what does it aim to do to overturn these these laws? Yeah, okay, exactly that, exactly that. So um, it's one of the reasons why you'll see, for example, every county attorney and the AG named as a defendant because those are the folks who'd be enforcing um, the criminal side of this law. It also uh, seeks to uh, to a basic finding of unconstitutionality with respect. To some of the other provisions in there. So we were delighted that um, a group with the kind of expertise and recognition, um, like the uh, National Reproductive Rights uh, Council, like would step in and want to take this issue on. Great. Well, fingers crossed on this one, because those are a lot of um, crazy, crazy laws. Um, it's so interesting that 
men have are making decisions about our bodies. It's it's, it's a head scratcher that one. Um, yeah, actually, can I one one more thing yeah. on that because it really is it really is like this blatant misogyny. But to add to that, this really isn't even the worst bill that Arizona has on abortion. Uh, please keep in mind that Arizona continues to have a felony abortion ban. And it is only because Roe v. Wade remains the law of the land that it is unenforceable. Mm-hmm. If Roe v. Wade were to fall, and in Mississippi, uh, there's, a, there's a case originating out of Mississippi that's making its way to the Supreme Court that is a direct challenge to Roe. If it falls, overnight, abortion will be a felony for every uh, you know person in Arizona who wants yeah. to access it and their doctors. Yep. A very precious ruling that uh, we really, really need to protect. It's a big one. That's a really big one. Well, on that note, Julie, you have so many things that you are you have on your plate. You are one of the most badass women I've ever met. That's um, working on so many things. I'm curious. Are you having any uh, inklings of um, running again in the next election cycle? How are you? What's 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 your what's the political uh, landscape for Julie Gunnigal? Oh, who knows? Who knows? You know, I, anybody who asks me whether or not I'm running, I tell them, you know, yes, absolutely. I am running in 2022. I have signed up for the Rock and Roll Marathon mm-hmm. and probably an Ironman. And you can expect to see me running on the streets, uh, running on a ballot. I I don't know. I'm always here for folks who, who need me. And I think the fight isn't over. It's a very open question whether it's easier to fight from within or f- fight from outside of the power structure. So, I, I don't know. You'll see me around no matter what. Yeah, that's what I love about you. You have just, you, you, you stay involved. It wasn't, um, you weren't running for office for the office. You were running for the people. And um, you've just continued to, to demonstrate that. So, we are very, very lucky to have you in Arizona, Julie. Really are. I, I so appreciate the work you do. It was a... Really, I was really excited to have you on the show today because you just really are so in the know, um, and uh, we really appreciate you. Um, so that's my little my little love story to Julie Gunnigal this morning. Um, what else mm-hmm. is on your plate, Julie, that um, you want to share with us this morning? Got anything else in the fire? Oh heck, yes, I do. Um, so one of the other issues that I am I'm working on is a case that's just received some national attention. We had. 49 different groups sign on to an amicus brief. And I am taking a case up to the Court of Appeals Division One, where my client is a former DCS worker. She got pregnant. Um, she had her medical marijuana card. She was actually one of the original medical marijuana card holders. And she had a terrible pregnancy. She had HG, which is, you know, the extreme form of nausea and vomiting. And after pharmaceuticals failed her, she uh, continued to, to smoke, knowing that her uh, cannabis doctor actually knew about, knew that she was pregnant and had approved her card. Anyway, this is a long-winded way of saying that the Department of Child Safety stepped in um, after her kiddo was born. Kiddo was born fine, of course, because, you know, the effects of, of marijuana during pregnancy um, are, are negligible is what the science has to say. And they placed her in the child neglect registry for 25 years, meaning wow. that she is unemployable in so many different industries. 
So uh, we stepped in and um, are defending her and her rights to make medical decisions for herself and her child and to protect patients. And I'm hoping that you'll hear a good Court of Appeals decision sometime after uh, September 15th. September 15th is when we go to oral argument. Great. Uh, Well, we're so lucky to have you, you know, taking on these cases because this is, um, again, very egregious. Um, So she's very lucky to have you. And I know you'll you'll keep on with these cases. And where can people find you, Julie? We're going to wrap up here. Where can people find you if they want to contact you? Sure. Um, Easiest way to contact me is on social media. I'm at Julie Gunnigal on Twitter, at Julie Gunnigal on Facebook and at uh, Julie underscore Gunnigal on Instagram. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Julie, and thank you for listening. We'll see you next week on Democratic Perspective. been listening to Democratic Perspective, brought to you by the Verde Valley Independent Democrats, a weekly talk show focusing on the political issues facing the Verde Valley, Sedona, Northern Arizona, and our nation at large. Catch us every Monday morning after the 8 a.m. news, right here on AM 780 KAZM. It's beautiful out there, folks. Have a great day.